Hello, friends. We are back with episode 78 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. My name is Eric Nance, and I'm always just delighted to have you join us audio listening from wherever you are around the world. I'm also joined by my awesome and busy co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how have you been today? Been doing well. I've been fighting Azure. So if anyone out there wants to take that over for me, I would be more than happy. I know how you feel on many, many of these services. And yes, my um, my explorations of the Azure API have been, uh, you might say, a little bit painful. So this is the joys of working in, in enterprise projects. It's never just R, and you sometimes have to hook in some really gnarly services to get everything you need. <laughs> sometimes I miss the days where I could only make it run on my machine. Yes, and the fact that you're saying that speaks volumes compared to the troubleshooting I've done in the past. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily, hopefully we won't have to do any troubleshooting for what we're about to talk about because we're going to have fun digging into some great R content for you um, with this issue that was curated by Kelly Bodwin. And as always, she had great help from our R Weekly team members and contributors. So we're going to dive into this with our first highlight, talking about some awesome new developments and a very important resource for many of us in the R and data science fields. So in the world of data science, we're often encountering many unpredictable circumstances. And one of those that you can count on, especially when you analyze real world data sets, is having maybe deriving a quick summary statistics, like say the mean or the median, and then you're running this in R and then the result you get back is not the number you're expecting, you get this NA. Now, why would that happen? Well, in quite a few base R functions that operate on some kind of numeric data, any presence of a missing value will by default give you a missing value right back, no matter how many other values are populated. And I still remember when I first uh, encountered this, when I was um, doing a real world R analysis, and then I learned about this particular function parameter called na.rm, which means to remove any observations that are classified as na before you actually compute that desired metric, like the mean or median or things like that. But I admit, handling these nas has not always been straightforward, and it's always helpful to know about some newer approaches in the R community to make that even easier for you in key situations. So as we speak, uh, Hadley Wickham, of course, chief scientist at our studio, he has been hard at work progressing with the second edition of the critically acclaimed R for Data Science. And he actually released um, in the in-progress chapter on dealing with missing data with the tidyverse approaches. And we're gonna talk about some of these cool tricks in our first highlight today. Now, I still use in base R the is.na function quite a bit in my explorations, but this chapter that Hadley's released has a few new tricks that you can use to deal with different types of missingness that can occur in your data. So some of the nuggets I thought I found in this chapter, one especially relates to the work I have to do in the um, life sciences space, where we often have to run analyses on outcomes or we need to actually impute any missing values and kind of this longitudinal profile with various methods such as last observation carried forward or LCF for short. And now I see that the tidy R package has a handy function called fill 
which will actually make it much easier to impute those right out of the box without some custom grouping and other custom logic to do it. And you can tweak it in different directions as well. But that's going to be a great thing for my toolbox in the future. And also from the dplyr package, a function called colis or colis, I'm not sure how to say it, but it's a great shortcut to what I used to do in the past with these if-else constructs when I'd want to replace a missing value with a constant. And likewise, going in the other direction, the na underscore if function, when you need to convert something that did have a, quote, non-missing value into a missing value. Perhaps you were getting data from a measurement device that coded missing records as like some cryptic integer like 999 or something like that. You could easily use this NAF to compose those into the appropriate missing values. And then lastly, what I saw is the complete function from tidyr. And what's handy about this function is that you can generate what you might call explicit missing values, or more specifically, combinations of certain grouping variables where you might want to show that there's a response or some measurement that's missing. And that can be especially handy when you're starting to do like visualizations of a time course to recognize that there may be some gaps in that particular measurement. So the long short of it to me is that there's a lot of new tricks that are available to us to deal with missing values quite efficiently. And now we can kind of read along with the in-progress second edition of R for Data Science amongst many other uh, cool updates that Hadley is making in the book. So Mike, what are your thoughts about these um, this new in-progress chapter and where R for Data Science is going here? We are so lucky to have resources like R for Data Science that are freely available online and open source, which is really awesome, as well as available in print for people like me who just consume long form material, material better in print than I do online. And grabbing a hard copy of the book is a great way to support Hadley and the folks who publish open source books like R for DS. So I would encourage any listeners, if you've found that the online version of a book has helped you out in your data science journey, try to pick up a physical copy as a thank you as well, if you can. Missing values, man, do we keep them? Do we throw the whole observation away? Uh, Do we replace them with some imputed value? I don't think there is a great right answer to these questions because it it really depends on the domain and context of the particular data set that you're working with, at least in my experience. So don't expect the the new chapter in R4DS to tell you what to do when you encounter missing values. Rather, like you said, Eric, it provides a bunch of different strategies for working with missing values and lets the user decide which strategy is right for their particular use case. One of my favorite tricks um, to ensure that you are capturing all of the data that you want is to use the, the dot drop equals false argument inside dplyr group by to ensure that when you do some summarization, you preserve all levels of a factor. Um, so even if a level has you know zero account of, of zero, if you're if you're doing like a count after that or a, a sum, um, you make sure that that shows up on that factor level within sort of your your grouping functions there. So you don't forget about a level that you had at the beginning. And that's really useful, especially for 
modeling as well, so that if you do have new data that is representing a level that that maybe wasn't in your your training data because you you lost the the value because you did some sort of aggregation, um, you'll ensure that by doing that dot drop equals false argument that that you continue to have that data for training purposes or or whatnot. So a lot of really good nuggets in there. Like you said, I think um, you know folks coming from a SQL world will recognize things like that, the coalesce function that you talked about, Eric. And I learned about that NAF function, which I think is a great one that I will be using going forward for you know those great data sets when somebody just plugs a, a 999 in for a value that actually should be missing. So lots, lots of good nuggets here. Check out the latest uh, updates to this particular chapter. And like I said, it's open source. So if you see something, if you see a typo or, or, or something that needs fixing, uh, put a PR in there for Hadley. That's right. And not only will that greatly help the, the, pro, the book itself, but um, you'll be recognized in your, with your GitHub ID in the acknowledgments section. I have noticed that anybody that does a contribution of, of many different types. So we'll be, we'll be cited in that. So a good way to get our famous. <laughs> exactly. No, they, they do a good job of making sure in those books that everybody that made a contribution does get, get recognized. There's a long list of uh, GitHub handles. That's right. That's right. And, and I second your, your, um, your uh, call there about, I love that these are out in the open, but I think the best way to keep that model going is to show our support for it in both getting the online version that we have free of charge, but also the printed version, because um, this publishing model, if you if someone had told me 20 years ago, this would be a thing I would have laughed in your face because I still remember paying so much just for those college textbooks and thinking there would be never a time where I could just pull one up online and read it, you know, somewhere conveniently on a screen, but then on other times be able to view the printed version. We're, we're very lucky that many of the books that I've been reading regularly have both versions available. I think it's a, it's a great win for, for education and a great win for leveling up your skill set. So in this day and age, we have a multitude of online services that provide many different types of maps and custom layers to fit different needs. Now, I tend to think of this in somewhat layman's terms, but if I'm on like Google Maps to figure out the best driving route from point A to point B, of course, I'm going to look at the kind of the, the default view, which is kind of like the street view, you might say. But then if I want to see kind of like what's actually around that destination, I often pull up that satellite layer to kind of see maybe where's the parking lot or are there other you know, landmarks around there that I may want to take a look at. Well, uh, now in your friendly R console, you have the power to create not just that default view, which you've been able to do for a long time, but with these newer resources coming available, you can now import these different layers on top of your map and build a really powerful and attractive looking uh, mapping structure directly in R itself. And so our next highlights um, from a blog post written by Milos Popovich, hopefully I'm saying that right, uh, data analyst with booking.com. He's written a very practical and readable tutorial and how he was able to show us how to build a topography map of the Italy country 
all within R itself and using publicly available resources, no proprietary files, no proprietary services involved. And so it's a great way to kind of get started with mapping an R. Um, so Mike, you're going to make a map of your favorite country? Absolutely. I, th that's really cool that Milos works at Booking. I wonder if they are using these topographical maps in R in any capacity in his day-to-day -day work there. That would be interesting. Right. I've created a million leaflet maps in, in my day, but I have yet to ever build a topographical map. And the tutorial that Milos put together is very cool and shockingly straightforward. Yeah. Um, he makes it makes it pretty obvious and, and pretty easy and friendly to show you how to build these topographical maps. And I just continue to be blown away by what we can accomplish with ggplot2 and a couple of gg extension packages. But the, the plot itself is literally a, a map of Italy that comes out. So it's so cool. Um, that the fact that we can do that and build bar charts in, in ggplot is just, just crazy. In particular, uh, in this blog post, Milos uses a package called Elevator, uh, without the O at the end, Elevate R um, package, specifically a function called get raster to retrieve the elevation data. So that would be, I guess, that, that third dimension that, that hurts my brain to, to think about, which is probably why I don't do a lot of topographical mapping. <laughs> but <laughs> too much of a simpleton. But then to build the color palette that runs from like green to brown, depending on the elevation level, uh, Milos uses the function scale fill etapo from the marmap package, M-A-R-M-A-P package. Uh, so two new packages that I hadn't uh, seen before, but really easy, nice to use friendly functions for, for building in that elevation component into the plot. There were a few other R packages in this blog post that seemed incredibly useful, including the Terra, T-E-R-R-A uh, package, the G-I-S-C-O-R package. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, and of course, the SF package, so which we've talked about uh, recently as sort of being the, the leader in G-I-S uh, data analysis within R. So I encourage you to check those packages out as well if you'd like to play around with GIS topographical mapping. And, and fortunately for us, Milos has a really nice GitHub repository already set up with the code from the blog post that you can clone and run yourself right there in your R console to map whatever country or region or state that you want to build a topographical, topographical map for. Yeah, it, it was really, like you said, it was amazing to see what to my, you know, again, limited limited experience on making maps, I would think this would be a hugely complex endeavor. But once you get the get the layers you need from these uh, shape files online, yeah, it's just like anything in ggplot2. You're adding layers, you're adding some aesthetics, but it's all that same kind of that same overall process, and that's what makes visualization and R still to me the the leader of all the different statistical computing packages for visualization because you can use these unified approaches and have as many different rich kind of visualizations as you can come up with all within a similar paradigm thanks to not just ggplot2 itself but the extension community of packages that are adding all this additional functionality on top um, I, I know about a year or so ago, I had my first time putting a 
interactive leaflet-like map in Shiny. But yeah, the possibilities you can have by letting the user select certain regions, and you could even obviously like this blog post, put in topographical information with that as well. You could link that to all sorts of additional metrics that you could come up with. So I think the the geospatial community in R is, is thriving these days. Lots of awesome movement and improvements that are happening that we covered a few episodes ago in the ecosystem. So definitely a great time to get into it if you're in in the need of producing custom maps in R. Yeah, the fact that we can just in the open without any paid resources, as you see in the blog post, get the elevation, the lat lawn and the elevation data for Italy in like 10 lines of code in R is, is just incredible. So great job by Milos uh, demonstrating how to do so. Yep, and as always, we have links to all the highlights in our show notes, so definitely check it out. And as Mike, as you said, give that GitHub repo a look over, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot more cool nuggets coming from Milosa in the future as well. And now for our last highlight, which admittedly has me continuously amazed at what's possible. So on my bookshelf, talking about books for a second, one of the earliest books I purchased for my continued learning in R is from John Chambers, Extending R. This has been an awesome resource from one of the leaders in this whole computing industry on those that are interested in linking R to different software frameworks. And John was certainly a pioneer in many aspects of computing. But I think there's at least one area that I'm almost 100% certain he would not have thought was possible. So leave it to Mike, aka Cool But Useless on Twitter, to blow us away with another unique and downright amazing solution that combines aspects of a digital drum machine with R in our last highlight. I, I don't know how really else to describe this, but I got vibes of having my own digital audio jukebox powered by R itself, and I still can't believe it's possible. Mike, how the heck is this possible? Honestly, if at our studio conf this year, there isn't a DJ who is on the ones and twos spinning this package, just <laughs> that drum beats, I will be supremely let down. Um, but yeah, I don't really know how it's, how anything that, that Mike does is possible. I think he had a blog post, uh, last week that was, uh, event loop for real time interactive rendering in R, which was a, a wild blog post and just kind of incredible functionality. He's definitely of the camp of extending R. I have am not shocked at all that you own that book, Eric, Extending R. That's not something you would ever, ever try to do or I've ever heard you try to do. Um, but yeah, this week he, he's back and even made the highlights this week with a new package, uh, which is pronounced Trader, T-R-808-R. So that is super clever um, for the audio heads out there. And, you know, we, we've had our games in the console, all sorts of crazy highlights of people doing amazing things with R, but this has to be the coolest thing I have ever seen in R thus far. Speechless. I, I, yeah, I, I, I what it, and it also made me think, you know, one of the things I do in my um, live streams is I have this uh, tricked out stream deck that I use as kind of like my push button thing to control events in OBS or play certain alerts and stuff like that. 
I could build a soundboard in R with things like what Mike is doing with the trader package. Imagine being able to click on my screen a certain button in the region and play like a little sound effect. Like this is all possible now. Like I could do a soundboard in R. Like that's nuts. That's nuts, but it's a good kind of nuts. I probably will do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, next week we're probably going to have a new package to d drive our car from the R console. So looking forward to that one. Yeah. Sign me up. <laughs> um, maybe. Um, we need but, steering wheel. Yeah. Need, yeah. Need steering wheel for sure. Um, so one thing that was interesting is seeing kind of the after effects of these explorations. I've been... You know, I, I've been casually seeing what Mike's up to on on his uh, Twitter post. He's going down this rather lengthy rabbit hole, speaking of rabbit holes, around GUI development in R. He's been exploring some of the historical interfaces like TCLTK, which comes built into R. Um, in fact, I remember many, many, many years ago when I first started using R on Linux, someone told me that oh, there is an R GUI in Linux. You just have to launch it with this way. And I thought, really? Okay, here it is. It was arguably one of the most uh, bare bones and utilitarian interfaces, but that was my first exposure to the TCL interface. Well, Mike's apparently on a quest to really theme that up and try to make it look more modern, but I'm really intrigued by where this goes because, well, like you said earlier, if anybody can extend R in different directions, it's 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 Mike over here. So I think that's that's going to be worth watching, and maybe we will see some of this at our studio comp one way, shape, or form. <laughs> okay, interesting, interesting. Yeah, I've seen what what Mike's been putting on uh, Twitter along the lines of that package he's working on and and GUIs. I'm assuming that's like more of a desktop. GUI type deal. And I've also been seeing some other folks asking about uh, if there are any best practices or possibilities for desktop shiny apps. And, right. and it seems like uh, at one point in time, there were some folks working on that, but that hasn't really uh, been supported or, or come to fruition sort of with the, the current landscape of hardware that folks are using on a day-to-day -day basis. So maybe, uh, maybe this will help get us get us back there if if that's possible yeah um so i yeah i did see some twitter posts about that we've seen some efforts in the shiny space to wrap it with the electron framework which is if you use things like slack or teams or any of these other web-like apps are wrapped in electron so they look like a native app but they're really just um, a, a big uh bunch of javascript to put it lightly um and that's in essence what shiny is it's a web app based in javascript so that's not a trivial task though i'm good friends with the person that's been in charge of that and they or has been trying to to work on that and it's it's not easy at all there's a lot of hoops to jump through but there are some promising developments in the land of desktop uh gui frameworks in the linux world there two that are predominant are uh, GTK, the GNOME toolkit, and also uh, QT, letters Q and letter T, um, that actually powers a lot of things online, even on Windows as well. But there's another one that maybe Mike will want to pursue. I should respond to my Twitter about this called Flutter, which is supposed to bring the best of kind of like the JavaScript wrapping of web-like elements, but in a UI toolkit that you can cross-compile 
and have it work the same across the different major operating systems, Mac, Windows, and Linux. So who knows, maybe there's an R binding for Flutter in the future. I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule it out. Anything's possible. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So what? Uh, before we dive too far down all sorts of other rabbit holes, what were some <laughs> other additional uh, resources from our weekly this week that you found interest in? Yeah, so it won't surprise you that I found an interesting uh, post that's extending R yet again. Um, so Hiroke Yutani um, has a great slide deck in there about combining the web GPU API with R itself for visualizations. Um, I'm still kind of digesting all the, the intricacies of this, but web GPU is basically a way for your web browser to take advantage of high performance graphics um, to do some custom rendering and different uh, plotting types. It sounds like it's not easy right now, but this could lead to some really innovative ways of having web-based visualizations still powered by R, but with this middle layer of web GPU to hook into some more um, heavily intensive resources that your GPU card could give you. So I'm going to be watching that space a bit as I like to push the envelope a little bit of my uh, browser-based visualizations. Interesting, interesting. I uh, found a couple, one from Shannon Pelegi on her Piping Hot Data blog, put together a great intro to how to create slides with Quarto that highlight different chunks of your code, um, which I think is really useful for teaching you know, a new package or, or a new set of functions within a package and sort of going step by step and be able, being able to highlight that particular step that you're on. So definitely check that one out. The Quarto ecosystem is, is burgeoning and booming. So I think any blog posts that folks put together there are they're super useful for um, sort of getting some documentation really established around this community. Right. And then Andrew Heiss put together another phenomenal guide to building models that handle outcomes with lots of zeros. Uh, using hurdle models, which wasn't a term that I was familiar with before his blog post. And, and he put together a couple of blog posts in the past that were sort of of a similar nature um, of using beta regression models that he called uh, zero inflated beta regression models. So same kind of concept when you have a lot of zeros in your data, but the outcome or zeros in your outcome in particular, but the outcome is, is between zero and one. These hurdle models let your outcome extend beyond one. So you can have a lot of zeros, but you have this response variable that it goes from zero to, to something beyond one. And that's where these hurdle models come in because you can't use uh, beta regression models in that case. So really long, lengthy, beautiful blog post by Andrew. So I appreciate him putting that together uh, for those of us trying to, to apply some of these concepts in our day-to-day -day work. And, and I just find it so fascinating that... Um, you know, these particular use cases that folks find for one particular model can extend perfectly to a use case in a whole different domain or industry. And uh, that's something that I love about the community. Yeah, Andrew, um, he always does these top-notch write-ups of these different techniques. And I always feel like I'm going back to school when I read it, but in a good way, of course. I'm not, I'm not paying tuition for this reading. And it's also written in such a way that I can, I can directly apply this to perhaps uh, future projects with this kind of domain uh, specific issue that can happen with modeling that can be quite common in my industry as well. 
Well, what else is common? An awesome R Weekly issue. There's way more to come or way more to talk about that we could do, but there's only so much time in a day, but that's where all of you can read about these great links that are available at rweekly.org. You'll see the link to this particular issue right at the front page, along with links to all the previous issues where you can see these evolution of highlights that are going to the state-of-the-art mapping visualizations, turning R into drum machines and the like. You know, there's, there's a mix of everything there. And please uh, keep those pull requests coming for resources that you find online throughout the R community. We definitely appreciate all those. Our curator group is still hard at work trying to spin up the, uh, the old services, but we definitely appreciate your help in the community more than ever as we start to get things slowly up and running again. And so that'll do it for episode 78 of the R Weekly Highlights podcast. And we'll be back with another edition next week.